Welcome to De Beautiful's Digital Book Tour. This podcast series is a way for authors to connect with readers throughout America, even though their tours have been canceled due to COVID-19. To discover more debut authors, please visit debeautiful.net and subscribe to the podcast feed where we have in-depth interviews with people like Chelsea Beaker, Brandon Taylor, and Emma Copley-Eisenberg. Today's guest is a lecturer in the Princeton Writing Program, holds a PhD in English from Harvard, has previously released a poetry collection called What Was It For? Her latest book is her debut full-length nonfiction piece about crosswords. It's called Thinking Inside the Box, Adventures with Crosswords and the Puzzling People Who Can't Live Without Them. Her name is Adrian Rafel. Now, this is actually the second podcast I had with Adrian. Our first one was marred with bad internet connection, and she kept dropping out. So we referenced that a little bit, but we try to make this something that you didn't need to listen to that failed podcast recording. So if you hear us reference that first podcast, don't worry. We'll try to make everything make sense. Now, here's my second podcast with Adrian. Hey, Adrian, thanks for taking the second time to talk to me this week. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm, I'm doing great, Adam. And I'll tell you, I will have as many conversations about crosswords as you wish. I feel like, especially now, crosswords are the perfect thing to be talking about, reading about, doing, even trying, constructing, you know? Mm-hmm. Why not? Yeah, you know, I, I there's an author, her name's Sarah Sliger. She has a thriller coming out uh, in April, and she has two crossword puzzles up on her website that she created. And I was like, oh, that's so cool. And those were easy. I was able to do those because I, I'm a book nerd and was able to fill in the blanks. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I'll have to ch- go check them out. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely email it to you. Um, your book, Thinking Inside the Box, Adventures with Crosswords and the Puzzling People Who Can't Live Without Them, is in fact about crossword puzzles. Yes, it is. Yeah, it's about um, the history and culture of the crossword puzzle. So I would say, you know, what is this thing that is the crossword puzzle in our society, in our lives? And how did it come into being? And why has it stuck around and permeated so much of our culture, even if we don't realize it? We will dive deep into crossword puzzles and the puzzling people who love them. But I first want to give you a chance to read to an audience because, you know, we're all stuck inside and and this is your book tour chance to connect with readers. Great. Thank you, Adam. So, yeah, I'm going to read just a couple of pages from the book's introduction. So this is um, a little explanation of both how I got into the subject of crossword puzzles, and then um, just take you a little bit into what the book does. All right, thanks. I started writing this book when I was three. That's when I discovered what the alphabet could do. Using only a combination of these shapes on the page, I could beam down messages from my brain, which other people could put back together, making my message get wormed into their brains. Whenever I rode in the car, I'd play the alphabet game with my brother. We each had to find the letters of the alphabet in order, somewhere in the landscape zooming by, showing out the letter and its sight upon sighting. Whoever got from A to Z fastest was the winner. Dairy Queen, Quiznos, and Jiffy Loop became shrines. When I was growing up, children's book author Raw Dahl's reader par excellence 
Matilda was my hero. I stared at the towel rack in the bathroom so hard my eyes blurred, willing myself to move something by shooting telekinetic beams from behind my eyeballs, the way Matilda used her mental power to pick up chalk. But I was even more excited about the other things that letters could do, how letters could arrange themselves into any words, and how certain combinations of letters suggested other ones, even when they seemed unrelated. Monday nights during high school, my family had crossword races. My father would make photocopies of the Monday New York Times puzzle, hand them out to us, and send us to separate corners of the house. At his shout, we'd flip them over and begin. I'd scramble to finish before hearing my brother crow, done. I'd scrawl the final capital letters and rush into the living room, where my mom would be coolly reading the rest of the day's art section, having breezed through the grid several minutes earlier. Dad would be pretending not to care anymore, a few scattered blank squares mocking him. As a senior in high school, I had to do a capstone research project that included a community service component. I did mine about crosswords. The centerpiece was a spiral-bound book of crosswords that I brought into a local eighth-grade classroom, along with blank grids for the students to try their hand at puzzle-making. My puzzles back then were objectively terrible. I didn't realize you should make the grid symmetrical or that all the letters should interlock with each other. So my puzzles looked like jack-o'-lanterns instead of neat quilts, clues slash snaggletooths across the page. Thinking inside the box investigates the crossword from all sides. I start with the crossword's origins, tracking how that first crossword in 1913 evolved from novelty to craze to routine. I construct a puzzle from soup to nuts, and I go behind the scenes with crossword editors to discover how a crossword goes from rough draft to publication. I investigate the myths around crosswords. Are crosswords frivolous toys that fritter your brain away? Will crosswords stave off dementia? I go to crossword tournaments to learn from the best solvers and constructors in the business. I even take a crossword-themed ocean crossing aboard the Queen Mary, too. The more the crossword changes, the more it stays the same. The crossword is a reflection of everything happening around it, but it's also an anchor. In the wake of a particularly harrowing presidential election, an editor at the New Yorker said he found himself turning to the crossword puzzle as a life raft of stability in a world that had gone topsy-turvy. It's no accident that the crossword grew up during World War I and that the New York Times introduced its crossword during World War II. No matter how chaotic life is, solving a crossword puzzle gives you a sense of control. Seeing where the letters lead you sets the mind free. So crosswords were a part of your, your family's life. But are you, how big of a fan are you of sitting down and doing a crossword? Well, so I'll give you my secret is that I'm very average at actually doing crosswords. I like to do them. Um, I do them um, pretty regularly. I have a sort of a standing um, Saturday New York Times um, competition with a friend of mine where we send each other how long it took us that week. Um, I've gotten better at crosswords, so now I can do you know, pretty regularly do the New York Times one every day of the week, which certainly wasn't true for a long time. But I am like, I am just embarrassed at my time by the people who are even sort of mid-range at these crossword puzzle tournaments. Um, it's, 
it's insane how good people are. People's brains are miraculous. Yeah, I I definitely try to do crosswords, especially now that I'm home and there's just so much time and there's so many ones on the web or apps on your phone. I've been trying some and yeah, it takes me a while. It takes me uh, more than an episode of a sitcom to do a lot of them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so if, if, if you're someone who likes crosswords, how did you come to write an entire book about the crossword, crossword world? Well, part of the reason I got interested in it was discovering there was a crossword world in the first place. You know, I liked them, thinking about them. Um, and then what happened was I had um, sort of pitched to a magazine to write a profile about Will Shorts, who's maybe the kingpin of the crossword world, at least in America. He's the New York Times crossword puzzle editor. He's the puzzle master for NPR. And I hadn't really seen that many um, articles about this figure who everybody, millions of people see his name every day, crossword puzzle editor by Will Shorts in the New York Times. Um, so I started writing this profile of Will Shorts and went to his house in Pleasantville, New York, from which he edits the puzzle with a couple of assistants. Um, and it was so fascinating. Um, he's such a nice guy. Um, it was a really lovely interview. And what was even more like, so he is fascinating, but was even more fascinating was this crossword puzzle world. I realized that like, Will Shorts is the editor, his name is on this puzzle, but he's the tip of the iceberg, right? There's all of these constructors, thousands of constructors who are mailing thousands of puzzles to um, the New York Times who then ships them up to Pleasantville, New York. And then, you know, there's all of these constructors. And the New York Times isn't the only puzzle out there by any means. There's lots of puzzles out there. There's this tournament. There's, um, there was, you know, there was a documentary in 2006, which I'd seen about the crossword puzzle tournament, wordplay, it's a really good film. Anyway, so I realized in, in all of this that there was, I thought it was just a profile of an editor, but it was actually tapping into a much larger cultural phenomenon that I didn't realize. So that's kind of how the book, um, that was the seeds of the book, and then it grew from there. And then what what I find interesting is, and we talked about this in our first conversation, but I definitely feel listeners would be interested, is crosswords aren't that old. Yeah, this was something that I hadn't realized at all. I thought that crosswords were ancient, right? You know, you've just, they've been around for centuries, but this is another thing that could include me in that, hey, I think there's a book in here because the crosswords born in 1913 um, and it was an invention out of desperation. So um, a newspaper editor needed a game to fill a supplement of the newspaper called the fun section and he you know this is like the puzzles and games section of the newspaper uh it's a big edition because it's the christmas edition and he needs something to fill the space and so what does he do he thinks oh huh how about a word game where i can print a big blank grid in the center of the page that's awesome that fills like a lot of the page um and then i'll put clues next to it so it was you know there had been word search games before there had been games where you think about clues and answers, but nothing where the blank grid is printed in the newspaper with the words next to it. So 1913 is the invention of the crossword. 1913 is also just an amazingly interesting, fascinating time 
in history for so many reasons. First of all, eve of World War One, uh, modernism, right? So like that, the crossword is a production of modernism, essentially. That's or it's happening at the same time um, and getting popular at the same time as um, you know, in literature, you have Ulysses, The Wasteland, uh, Mrs. Dalloway, art, you have just modern, modern art going on. It's just this explosion and the crossword is at the center of it as well. I found just um, wildly a rich topic to go into. Yeah, it's just like, I feel books that I come across that are interesting about these weird, these, I'll call it a weird topic. That's not something I think about all the time. I, I feel <laughs> like I, I kind of know what the, the book would cover, but this book has so many just different surprises and uh, like not twists and turns, but it just, I, I had no clue about what was going to happen on the next page. It really felt like a thriller <laughs> almost. I'm like, I have like, who are these people that go on cruises and do tournaments and obsess over Will Shorts? And it's, it's just, did, what did you find yourself most fascinated with as you were writing it? I love that description of the book too. It's like the uh, a thriller in the world of crossword puzzles. You never know what's going to come next. Yeah, honestly, um, like what is this world is like? The, like you mentioned that documentary, they wouldn't have made a documentary if it wasn't fascinating, you know. Exactly. And how many tendrils the crossword puzzle has in so many places. So, I mean, one thing that one thing, um, you know, historically, this was some research I actually found pretty early on, but has just continued to delight me is like the crossword's role in World War Two, I think, is so fascinating, just as a historical tidbit um, that um the crossword was used in British newspapers. Intelligence officials like put this um, crossword solving test in the newspaper where they said, okay, if you can solve the crossword, um, you know, if you're like an expert solver, they brought people actually to like an office in London and had them solve the crossword. It's kind of a proto crossword puzzle tournament or, or in a way. And the top solvers from that intelligence officials came to the door and said, you know, okay, hey, you're recruited to help us with the war effort. And they were some of the ones who helped the Allies crack the Enigma code the Nazis were using. So the crossword is used as this recruitment effort in the war, which I think is so cool. And then also at the same time, the crossword in England um, became the site of, they thought it was possibly a site where um, some coded messages were going like anti-allied efforts because there were these code names that were appearing in the crossword the these words for d-day operations that were kind of appearing a little bit too regularly to be just a coincidence turns out that like long story short they were a coincidence but the guy who was making those crosswords had had help from some of the students that they were like next to an army base camp. So it was just like picking up weird words floating around in the language. Uh, but anyway, I love that the crossword is both a site that helps England win the war and is also kind of treachery or a possible traitor. The crossword's so important in, in this little humble thing. Yeah, it was important for people during the war to take their mind off the war. I know we talked about this in the first failed podcast recording, but that, that really makes sense because like people living through the war needing a distraction, people living through COVID-19, I don't think the crossword will ever go away. Yeah. The crossword, in fact, 
um, the New York Times picks up its crossword. As you were saying, like it, um, people need the crossword in times of crisis. The New York Times developed its crossword during World War II, about you know, right after Pearl Harbor, 11 days after Pearl Harbor. An editor at the Times sends a letter to, or a memo or something to the publisher and says, um, okay, so we are entering blackout days. Our, all our headlines are terrible. We need something to distract readers and to give them some sort of entertainment in the paper. Um, let's have a crossword puzzle. Even the New York Times has like sort of famously poo-pooed crosswords in the past. Turns out the publisher actually really loved crosswords. He was secretly buying another newspaper on the sly to like do its crosswords. So he was he was into it. And the crossword at the Times, then the Times, then he said, okay, well we can have a crossword, but if we do, it's going to be the gold standard of crossword puzzles. So yeah, so the crossword um, finally enters the New York Times because of World War II. And, you know, I'm really thankful. I'm, I'm thankful that the New York Times did decide to put the crossword in because that really boosted the crossword puzzle's life, reputation, mm-hmm. um, yeah. et cetera. So, yeah, crosswords invented in the early 1900s because they needed space. It becomes, it becomes, what's the word I'm looking for? Um it's like solidified in, in American culture during World War II. What's the next big step that happens between World War II and now in the evolution of crosswords? So a couple of things happen um, in terms of the like content of the crossword and the things that are going into it and the quality of the puzzles. Um, Will Shorts becomes editor at the New York Times. Um, and, you know, he and among several other editors had sort of um, been making inroads in changing the crossword from a place that was really just referencing, you know, basically the crossword was full of cool in-jokes if you happen to have been an upper-class white male and gone to Yale in the 1950s. Like, you would see your culture <laughs> reflected in the crossword, but it was kind of like there weren't any other references to anyone else, so there, it was just really a place full of good old boys in jokes for a long time. A lot of the mainstream crosswords were. So um, in the early 90s, when Will Shorts takes over at the New York Times, um, he starts, for example, allowing clues to be like clues and answers to be based on brand names. So the word Oreo can be clued as like Nabisco cookie and not as some weird mountainous combining form or whatever Oreo used to be clued as in the past. So um so the puzzle sort of gets a facelift in the 90s. And then um, the second thing that has really revolutionized puzzling has been the internet and apps. And the internet has really allowed for the proliferation of a lot of phenomenal independent crosswords, the ABCX crossword, Fireball crosswords, they're just all of these subscription crosswords um, that are available online and also on your phone. Um, it's really uh, and the technology software has really helped a lot more people get into constructing crosswords so not only have crosswords themselves become more focused on wordplay and more inclusive and um just kind of upped the number of people who see themselves in the crossword which is a great thing also technology has really 
um, really help provide, really widen the crossword community and help provide a lot of access to it. And that leads me to, you mentioned that you you had gone and watched and participated in this crossword tournament, which your book was supposed to be released to coincide with that, but COVID-19 kind of took over our lives. What is this crossword yeah. tournament? Yeah, so the, this has um, been sort of a crazy thing about this launch is that we, you know, we planned this, um, the book's release around the yearly American Crossword Puzzle Tournament, which normally happens every year in late March in um, Stanford, Connecticut, but gathering a lot of, you know, 700 people, many of whom are on the north side of 70 in the epicenter of a global pandemic is not really a great call. So it is um, postponed and we're, they're hoping to have the tournament in September, which would just be phenomenal, you know, um, and I mean, we'll have it again soon. And there was a an online version on, on the weekend it was supposed to happen. That was quite fun. But anyway, so the Crossword Puzzle Tournament was started in 1978 by Will Shorts, um, and it gathers people together. And it's kind of like a cross between, I don't know, crossword prom and the SATs. Like <laughs> Everybody's in like this ballroom at the... Um, this is Marriott in Stanford and they get their puzzles and it's very official and timed and everybody's just sitting there scratching away at their puzzles and then uh, you go out in the hallway and like breathe for two seconds and join the enormous line at the coffee cart and then go back inside and do another puzzle and you know it's, it's amazing this tournament and the puzzles that they have um, for the tournament are special and they're quite clever and one of them is always really diabolical and people, you know, it's, it's, it's really interesting because, you know, the people who are crossword people, it get, it really gets a whole cross section of culture too. It's, it's really fun. And it's kind of a, it's a reunion for a lot of people who come, they come year after year after year to this thing. How does one get into the tournament? Are there regional tournaments? Like it's a Miss America pageant or if I show up, can I just participate? <laughs> So you can, anybody can just participate, and I will warn you because this happened to me. Um, if you just kind of sign up and participate and walk in, um, you will not do well but because there are so many. Unless you're like a sort of secret genius at the crossword, which maybe you are. <laughs> um, but but um, there are different levels. There's like A through E. So the, the you know you like your level A. Um, then the finals of the tournament actually the finals are so cool because like the um, levels C, B, and A all get to sort of perform on stage in a live, big live action crossword puzzle finals. And what's really cool is that they all use the same exact um, answer grid, but the clues are different, which is something that I didn't realize about crossword. We actually talked about this in our first conversation a bunch and I wanted to bring it up. It's something I didn't realize um, too much about crosswords until I got into the book and I find amazing is that um, a different answer grid but with different clues can become radically easier or radically harder so for example like I have the answer bacon and I'm gonna if it's an easy clue right it's like um, fried uh, pork products even in the morning okay cool bacon <laughs> but if it's a if it's um, 
strips in a club with a question mark. I would strips in a club. Whoa, that's make me think of one thing. And then I realized strips, that's a noun, not a verb. And club is a club sandwich. So strips in a club sandwich, the noun in a club sandwich is the bacon, right? So, so, um, so the live, so at the tournament, the finals are all the same answer grid, but the different clues. So the C puzzle is actually easier than the B puzzle, which is easier than the A puzzle, which means that the A puzzle guy, you know, the finalists for the A puzzle are solving it in, you know, seven minutes, or I guess like 10 minutes flat as opposed to 15 minutes flat. It's really disgusting how good they are. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I remember that that example you gave in our, the first conversation we keep referencing. It's just, it blows my mind. I, I, not, like, since that first conversation and this re-record, I was looking at just like clues and I'm like, these clues are, I could, I could never figure this out in a time crunch. Yeah, so what, and what I realized when I was interviewing Will Shorts and realized the crossword puzzle editor is a thing and it's an actual job and the main part of his job in that capacity i mean the, like there are lots of parts of this job but the main um thing about actually editing a crossword is not so much editing the grid because that's super hard that like you change one letter you can imagine the whole um answer grid falls apart so what but um what will shirts will do and his assistants will do is change the clues a lot so Say, and often it's it's to tweak the difficulty where he decides that um, oh you know this the New York Times puzzle goes on a gradient from Monday to Friday Monday being easiest and like Thursday Friday Saturday being the hardest so he's like okay if this is a Tuesday puzzle then I need this clue to be a certain level of easiness and the way that this constructor has clued it is too hard and so I'll go ahead and tweak or we've clued the word a n t just like we've clued ants just the same way in the past five puzzles. Like I need to give it a different clue. So that's something that was totally fascinating to me in that the actual mechanics of editing a crossword are really centered around like once they've, they accept a crossword based on how good the grid is very often or how interesting the themes are, but then they're perfectly willing to change up to 90% of the clues just, and that's still considered the same you know, crossword puzzle. That that was really mind-boggling to me. I found that amazing. And then outside of crosswords of this book, you have been published, you have a poetry collection that came out a few years ago. You have been published in The New Yorker, The New Republic, The Atlantic. You are a writer. You have a PhD in English. What interests you? Why did you become, why did you get a PhD in English? How did you get to where you are now? (laughs) So that's... (laughs) Uh, well, that's that's a great question. Um, I am, I mean, I'm really interested in words, like what words and language can do, and that's always driven me. Um, in poetry, it's really like what what the what sounds and rhythms and forms. I'm really interested in like what happens when you kind of um, put some some artificial constraints on, and that provides so much. Um, more freedom than total freedom in a poem and I would say in any kind of writing. Um, So that's what's, and I'm really interested in, um, in nonfiction. I find myself gravitating towards topics 
um, that sort of appear to be a little bit off to the side or a little or seemingly banal or kind of um, tame, but then actually reveal themselves to be really like at the epicenter of something or really extreme or really like really fascinating to think about. Like I've done, um, a, I wrote a profile of the inventor of the game, the sellers of Catan, um, which was really kind of amazing. This guy um, is a mild mannered dental technician in Germany who came up with an idea. Um, and I've written about like American girl dolls and modernist Japanese poetry and the poet Marianne Moore. And I, I find these like, figures who are sort of a slightly off to the side, but then you dig into them just a little bit and it, they reveal themselves to be at the center of something very particular or something very like, I hate the word zeitgeisty, but I can't help but use it. Um, and so that that's what's often driven me in terms of my own writing and work. Yeah. And then looking forward, I know like this book is so fresh and it's, you know, just coming out, but, and you, you, you mentioned this, like what interests you that in the past that you've written, but is there something that's on your mind now that you could see turning into a book length project? <laughs> um, I mean, I'm, I'm still, I'm actually, I'm working on a couple of book proposal ideas now. I'm trying to sort of figure out what exactly um, comes next. And I'm also like, working finishing up another poetry manuscript too but i have a couple of, i have a couple of ideas cooking i don't i'm not sure anything quite um fleshed out enough to say but but yeah like um it was it was funny finishing this book you know you have that i don't know at least i've had that moment of like this is the hardest thing I've ever done. Why am I doing the like, you know, I don't have a kid, but I'm like, this feels like I'm like having a baby. This is like the most so intense. And then the book comes out, I'm like, okay, yay, let's do it again. Great. Yeah. <laughs> like, what? Who, who, who am I? What is this? But yeah, I think, and I think, um, you know, even um, maybe just despite or because of or something, like, what, regardless of whatever's going on, it's been such a true gift to work with my editor and agent and publisher and all the people who are like really helping this book come out. And that process has just been like really, truly wonderful the whole way throughout it up to and including now. And I'm, you know, really, I really, you know, despite how crazy it is now, I really am excited to get back in the swing of the beginning stages of research again. Mm -hmm. I'm just looking at like, we're, look, I'm on your website looking at uh, your like pieces you've done. They range from like why fast food restaurants love and deny having a secret menus. And then you mentioned the settlers of Catan, what happened to Atl Atlantic city. I feel like for, for writers who want to write about culture and life, I feel like you they should look at how you write about things because you cover such a wide variety in such a unique lens. And I really loved reading through your pieces the past few days. <laughs> thank you so much. I feel like, thank you. That's really lovely to hear. I feel like, um, I mean, my sort of guru, uh, my, my definite guru of nonfiction writing is John McPhee. I was lucky enough to take a course with him. And one thing that I remember he, him saying is that he found a list and a notebook that he made when he was 19 of just all the random stuff or the stuff that he thought was random that he was interested in when he was 19. And that list is based and it's it's a really wide ranging list, right? It goes 
it, it covers so many things, but that list, that idiosyncratic list has become, it, he's hit like almost everything on that list in his writing career. And, you know, if you look at his books, there's like not much thread between, um, I don't know, oranges and long haul truckers and headmasters, but it all goes back to stuff that he's been interested in for whatever reason all along. And I feel like that's kind of, um, if there's anything driving me, it's kind of that, like what has always been weird stuff that's interested me all along. Yeah. And that's why, that's why I love like the weird stuff that interests writers because you just find some hidden gems out there on the internet or in, uh, in the New Yorker or tucked away in the New York Times Saturday issue. There's always something that's off kilter. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And then before I let you go, can you tell me what you're currently reading and what books really interest you right now? Uh, yeah, so a couple of things um, that I wanted to mention. Um, one book that I, it was, it's been a little hard for me, especially the beginning of this whole thing to focus on reading. I know a lot of other writers have admitted the same thing, but the book that got me back into being able to focus on reading was Duck's Newbury Port, which came mm. out. Uh, fairly recently and that book is the most wild ride it's like 900 pages a single sentence long and just so like astounding the clips and speaking of twists and turns of one writer's mind it's amazing um but some other new books that are coming out now that i wanted to um mention are mary south's new collection of short stories which is winging its way to me from bookshop.org right now. You will never be forgotten. Mm. Um, and um, Doyle McSweeney's new poetry collection, Alice Notley's new poetry collection, also the um, collection of essays, Minor Feelings by Kathy Park Hong um, was released in late February and her book launch was, I think, one of the last book launches in public that I went to. And it's just also another book that I've been actually able to focus on during these times it's a really necessary collection um so yeah so there's um just so many really phenomenal books coming out right now that even though we're all you know you can't celebrate in person mm -hmm. yet you can still read these amazing books which is a gift and adrian's right even though we can't be together in person celebrating these books we can still go to bookshop.org or call your local independent bookstore to get these books and celebrate these authors you can find adrian on the web at adrianrayful.com her twitter is just as easy adrian Rayful. as always you can check out daybeautiful.net and follow us on social media at daybeautiful stay safe out there until next time <laughs>